this is a time where people should be looking at their strategy. And if they've had any drift, you know, style bleed over the last couple of years, they need to, they need to refocus. They need to need to go back to their knitting, if you will, and figure out what their core competency is to get through this next phase and hopefully uh, not be in that in that stress position where they need to be refinanced. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on November 21st, is a conversation with the president of East Hill Secured, Mike VK, and Chris Hartung, the executive director of the Fisher Center for Real Estate at UC Berkeley, as well as co-founder of the Terra Firmer REIT Investment Funds. This is the second of our Stop the Normally Scheduled Programming to have a conversation about the current challenged market conditions in the commercial real estate business. The first was an interview a few weeks back with Byron Carlock from PwC and the primary author and spokesperson for the annual ULI Pricewaterhouse publication, Emerging Trends in Real Estate. If you missed that episode, it's worth going back for it. This is a similar conversation drilling down on the current market conditions with two of my favorite leaders in the business. There's no better pulse on the market than from East Hill Secured and Mike VK dives right in about the current capital markets for real estate. Chris Hartung offers a complementary perspective focused both on the REIT market in which he trades and his broader perspective from the Fisher Center. No surprise on the headlines in the conversation. There's a definite market pause until rates stabilize and a new normal is achieved. Optimism around the fundamentals for the next cycle once it starts, but deep questions around work from home, the future of office and their ripple effect on our downtowns, and therefore calls for leadership from our industry and collaboration with the political sphere on the iteration of our downtowns, especially in the most impacted CBDs like my town of San Francisco where our leadership and partnership in the civic realm is absolutely essential. This was a great conversation with Chris and VK. We're releasing this interview on December 12th to give you food for thought for the holidays. I'll be away for a few weeks on a trip to New Zealand. So we're releasing two prior episodes to keep our listeners busy over the holidays. The first re-release will be my interview with MacArthur fellow Roseanne Haggerty from Community Solutions one of our leading thinkers on the development of innovative strategies to end homelessness. In the conversation with Chris and VK on struggling downtowns like San Francisco, we of course drilled down a bit into homelessness, since that's always now part of almost any conversation. Cities like San Francisco will not reclaim their mojo without solutions to this issue. A lot of you missed that conversation earlier this year with Roseanne, so here it is back at you. And the second re-release is my conversation from two years ago with futurist Paul Sappho. I was curious how an interview with a futurist would read two years later. I listened in the other night during a car ride and found the conversation as fresh and thought-provoking as when we first had the conversation two years ago. So we're re-releasing that on January 2nd. This has been an eventful year related to leading voices. We merged my firm, Terra Search Partners, into the ZRG Partners platform back in April. So my perspective has changed from leader of an 11-person business to a co-head for the real estate sector of a global talent advisory business. That change of venue for me has been awesome, 
and it's great to have the resource of a global firm for our work in real estate executive search. And thank you to ZRG for supporting the podcast. We've also recently passed both 130 episodes released and the one millionth download for Leading Voices. We are, I think, the highest rated commercial real estate podcast. And this year, we've had just some awesome guests from the top of the real estate industry, like Chris and VK, Ross Perot on the prior episode, Steve Ross from Related, Larry Baer from the San Francisco Giants, the leaders of EQR, Toll Brothers, Extra Space Management, GID, Boston Properties, Sun Communities, NMHC, ULI, Biomed, and lots of others. We even got to dive into a whole episode on the effect of bike commuting on the built environment. My travels through the world of real estate, and therefore your travels, have been awesome, and you listeners give me the reason to open the doors to have these conversations, so thank you. As always, I hope that you enjoy this episode and encourage you to subscribe to the show, share your favorite episodes with a friend, and please take a few minutes to rate us on your podcast app. Please, it helps spread the word if you rate us. And if you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions for next year, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Enjoy the show and happy holidays. So first of all, Chris and VK, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. This is my second of the interrupt the planned guest list to talk about this current real estate downturn, maybe also overall economic recession. Uh, this time with two professionals in a discussion format who bring great wisdom to the real estate capital markets. A few weeks ago, we had Byron Carlock from PricewaterhouseCoopers and the primary author of Leading Trends in Real Estate. He was on the show to talk through both leading trends in the present moment and the context between the two. Um, and now we're talking to two very different guys, particularly Mike VK from a deal perspective and the capital markets perspective, and Chris both from Berkeley and the REIT world that you play in. So we have a lot to talk about, but much on the same subjects. I'm trying to figure out what's going on now and what that means for the next year or two, and then coming out what that's going to look like. So we have a lot to talk about. Let me have each of you introduce yourself so our listeners know your voices. And Chris, let's start with you. And you have two jobs, so talk about both. Sure. Thanks, Matt. And great to be here with you and BK. Uh, certainly interesting times. Hopefully we didn't uh, <laughs> wish for these, but we have them and we need to deal with them. Um, I'm Chris Hartung. I've got two roles. I serve as the executive director at the Fisher Center for Real Estate and Urban Economics at Berkeley. It is a job that allows us to continue to support research for the industry, as well as train, hopefully, the next leaders of our industry through the Haas School of Business. And in my day job, as you pointed out, I run various REIT portfolios of listed real estate securities, both domestically and globally. Cool. Thank you. And VK? Thanks, Matt. Uh, I'm Mike Van Kanenberg. Most people know me as Mike VK or just VK. So I am president of Eastville Secured, which is a real estate investment banking firm that focuses on all types of capital-related transactions for institutional owners. So joint ventures, asset sales, financings, M&A transactions, loan sales, which is a new topic to begin today. But across, across the globe, we do about $200 billion per year of capital market transactions. Cool. Let's just jump into it. What's happening 
it feels like there's a capital markets dislocation right now, not particularly a real estate dislocation. The fundamentals seem strong, I think. But again, capital markets feel locked down in terms of transaction volume and in terms of debt. And Mike, I think you're the person to start off that conversation. What's going on? Sure. So it is a very interesting time. All of these are different. So we are starting with a surprisingly strong underlying fundamental. Obviously, very strong employment, strong consumer balance sheets, strong rents, particularly in the asset classes that are most desirable, increasing replacement costs. So we have very hard to add new supply. And so we're not overbuilt. So we have both a strong general economy and a strong underlying property market. But at the same time, we obviously have record uh, inflation, highest inflation in 40 years. And so we have a Federal Reserve that is extremely aggressive at fighting that inflation. And that likely is going to slow the economy materially to do that. But I think it's an interesting time frame where in roughly a year's time frame, we're going to raise interest rates probably almost 500 basis points from zero at the beginning of 22 to probably 5% by March in 23. At the same time, we're going to decrease liquidity. We're re- reducing $95 billion a month on the Fed's balance sheet as being allowed to roll off. And so that has to be absorbed by the private sector. And then we're further, thinks the Fed kind of hamstringing, hamstringing the largest liquidity provider in the market, the commercial banks, uh, with new capital requirements that came into effect in the second quarter of 22 that right, requiring them to raise capital through retaining additional earnings, but it's limiting their ability to grow their balance sheets. So we have kind of this triple whammy of very high rates and decreasing liquidity. And so we've seen in the property markets, we've gone from 3% financing costs a year ago in late 2022, 21, excuse me, to 6 to 7%. You know, even for the best quality product, when we have a 10-year that's around 4% and a short-term rate that are, are approaching five over the next two or three months. So it's clearly impacted uh, our space. And historically, you know, inflation has been good for real estate. Rising rates has been, you know, we've, we've survived it most of the time for better than we've expected because of the growth. Recessions are what really usually hits real estate, but these higher borrowing costs really impacted both the velocity of the market and the valuation of the market. Mm-hmm. And does that borrowing cost return us to a historic norm? What's what's historic norm and how have we stabilized at those interest rates in the past? Yeah, so, so six to seven kind of takes us back to the mid-2000s, pre-GFC, and in the mid-90s. Uh, you, know, you know, we were more like 9 and 10, 11 in the 80s. We got into the mid sixes in the '90s. We were in the you know low lower sixes to, to fives in the 2000s. So it does take us back about 15, 17 years. <laughs> hey, Chris, any comments on what we're saying so far before we turn to what what, do, what does that mean for transaction volume and deals right now? I, I think Mike said it really well. I think context here is going to be key as we move through this transition period to whatever the new normal is. And if we you know, take that um, and maybe view it a little bit shorter and just think back three years, right before COVID hit, we were at sort of 3-2 uh, 
uh, in the 10 year. We're now at sort of three, seven, three, eight. We have an inverted yield curve that is its most inverted since 1982. And by inversion for those uh, people that are listening, it just means that the short-term rate is higher than the long-term rate. And that is usually a precursor in most times to a recession. And so to me, we have the financing picture that Mike articulated. And now, as you even said, what is going to happen with fundamentals? And so we're right now at a really strong period of fundamentals. But if we get into that recessionary period that everybody seems to be forecasting, then that's where I think the forward look of what's going to happen in real estate gets much more murkier than this transitory period that I think we're in today around a seized up financing market. And what does that mean? So let's talk about recession or not. And we're in a recession or a lockdown in our business while fundamentals are good. Does it, the recession then makes fundamentals worse if we actually fall into the broader economy recession? Is that the risk or is it psychological risk? What's, what's the difference between that and now for us? Well, I think it starts with the self-fulfilling prophecy almost that seems to be happening where people see the financing market get locked down. We have the headline news keep saying recession, recession. And I talked about the inverted curve, which would suggest that is coming. But because of that, I think we're seeing, in, whether it's the leasing market, the financing market, and now the forward capital expenditure market by corporations, everybody's pulling back and saying, wait, whoa, let's pause so that we can figure out where this is going. But that then is that self-inflicting wound that precipitates, I think, a further downturn. But yes, you're right. It's If we get into that recession, then what happens with that demand profile across the different sectors that will compromise property cash flows that will then add to the woes if this financing seize up is still there. And if everyone's talking about recession or not recession or not, but we're in the lockdown anyhow, because we're in this change moment, whether it's formally a recession or not, the change moment may last one, two years. Any sense of the period of the change moment till things stabilize? I think what we're waiting for, uh, and the market currently is waiting for, is when does the Fed actually say they are pausing? And there seems to be a, an expectation that that's going to occur in February or March with a SOFA rate and a Fed fund rate that's going to be about five. I think the second key dynamic is when does the Fed stop running the balance sheet off? And I think there's already getting uh, challenges of liquidity in the treasury market and in the you know, foreign exchange market, that there is real likelihood that by that time in March or so, the Fed agrees to stop quantitative tightening. So they just keep the balance sheet. Anything that matures, they buy it back. I think that would be a big um, uh, move because then you wouldn't have to have the capital markets absorb this $95 billion a month that's off. And then the third third thing is really the banking system, which you know, based on current earnings rate, will meet those capital tests that have been imposed, increased capital tests by the end of the second quarter of 23. So I do think the market's kind of waiting 
for those three things to occur, which is going to happen sometime in the first and second quarter of 23. And then everyone's going to be able to say, okay, I kind of now know what is going on in the money market, so to speak, in the financing markets. Now I can focus on what's going on in the fundamentals, et cetera. So I think that's what we're waiting for to have this kind of, you know, uh, ability for people to start underwriting, you know, fundamentals and knowing that their financing cost is pretty stable at that point. And then one thing you haven't mentioned, interesting, is you, at the beginning of the conversation, Mike, you talk through all the good things that sit there on the side of real estate, the wall of capital was left out of that discussion. I'm assuming that wall of capital is pretty big. Maybe there's some denominator issues changing in the funds business, but nevertheless, huge wall of capital so that once that stability is achieved, lots of people, our listeners, are ready to get back to business. Comments on that? Yeah, so I think, I mean, there is a very large wall of capital. A lot of that capital is in closed in private equity funds that were raised last year. And so they are committed to strategies that, and most of those strategies in the closed in private equity funds, the highest percentage commitments are to value add and opportunistic strategies. So strategies that are expected to earn 13% to 20% levered IRR. So there is a wall of capital, but it is oriented towards outsized equity returns. And so you see that, you know, we now have the denominator effect with bonds down 20% for the year and equities down 15% for the year. So people's allocation to real estate already has gone up just by the fact that everything else has gone down. And so they, but so the availability of new net core money, money is looking to earn a levered nine to 10% is pretty thin right now. There's not a wall of core money, but there's a wall of more value-add opportunistic money. And so what that, how that plays out is if debt is 6 7 8% and the cost of equity is 13 to 20 you've got to reset pricing pretty aggressively to get that wall of capital put to work. And so that's where kind of the standoff is right now, is waiting for the pricing to adjust to a level, debt to stabilize, and then pricing to adjust to a level that that wall of value-add and opportunistic capital, which is quite huge, can be put to work at returns that match what they've offered to their investors. Let me ask a question about that. Does, if you look forward three years into the next capital that might be raised, do you think the ratio of core and core plus to the ratio of value-add and opportunistic will change so that there'll be more dollars for core plus, more stabilized asset stuff? Or is it still a business, particularly in those funds, where it's go chase the higher returns? Well, I think, you know, the the place where that core and core plus money tends to go is more the open-ended funds. Yep. So the funds where people can put a queue to get in and queue to get it out. And with the denominator effect, there's a bigger cue to get out of those funds right now than to get in. But I think these things tend to equalize over time. There's always a lot of capital that wants to have value add or opportunistic returns. Sometimes, though, you have to sit for a long time waiting for those to come to fruition and be available. So the faster way is to put money to work is in 
core and core plus if that's what your CIO wants to have. So I don't think there's going to be a fundamental shift in the availability long term of those capital sources. But right now, there's definitely a fundamental imbalance that has occurred. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing, Matt, that I would add to that, which is also important, is to look at where does real estate sit relative to other alternatives. And so for a long time, we were beneficiaries of TINA. There is no alternative as far as getting yield and income. Now, the fact that you have corporate bonds, interest rates just themselves much higher, there is an alternative now if you need income and you want to generate a total return based a lot on that income. And that's where I think from the core perspective, real estate is going to have a bit more headwind as far as the capital allocation to that core, core plus, because that is what you would look at as an alternative to fixed income. And fixed income is looking pretty darn attractive in this type of situation relative to where it had been, because as Mike said, and I completely agree, and the Fed has certainly indicated this time and time again, that that terminal rate, that endpoint that they're going to get to is going to be in sort of the five-ish area. And that means that all fixed income instruments are going to elevate to that level as well. That keeps real estate as a more core value add or opportunistic play for most investors. How does that affect REIT world, Chris? Well, we're, we've already seen the effect of it as the public markets do tend to look forward. And so loan REITs are down 25% versus the broader stock market 15, and they're down about the equivalent to growth stocks, the tech stocks in the marketplace. And I think a lot of that has people seeing where interest rates are going, realize that the dividend yield REITs are spinning off, haven't been as attractive, and that there needs to be a repricing among many of the asset classes because we're not in a free money environment anymore. Now, if you think and you compare that to what has happened in private real estate, I just looked at the numbers the other day. If you if you look over the last three years, so just you know, post-COVID, pre-COVID to today, REITs are total return-wise up about 3%. Now, price-wise, so if you take that income component off, they're actually down about 8%. In contrast, the RCA numbers suggest that private real estate is up 31% over that that same time. So very dramatic disconnect in that that performance piece. And does that get stabilized and normalized back after we come back? Because we're we're now going to move the conversation from what's happening right now to where we may be at the end of this. And then we're going to come in the middle back to what do we do now? So that's that's the nature of how we're going to attack the discussion. But talk about you know what's out two, two years or so, Chris, and talk about the different asset investment classes of, not the different investment vehicles for real estate and how they stack up and how competitive each might be and how it may normalize. Well, and, and Mike can, can talk a lot about the, the private side. I'll focus on, on the public guys. I think what is very positive for the public companies in this environment is they are incredibly well insulated for the capital stress that we're currently seeing 
in the marketplace. They're arguably at almost all-time low leverage levels. They've fixed out most of their debt and they've termed it out, meaning that they have very few maturity pressures, uh, maybe until 26, 27. So they've actually got time to play through this. And so I would expect that if we get more stress in the private markets, they will go on offense sometime in 2023 if the stock prices start performing a little bit better. So I'm pretty optimistic about where where they play. They also are playing in sectors that are not quite your, your four traditional food groups. So there's over half of the market that I play in that are alternative sectors. Things such as cell towers, data centers, self-storage, you know, you name it, there's a much broader array that I can look at and try to insulate against what those pressures may be, particularly if we had a newer recessionary environment uh, in 2023. And that's a pretty different story in each of the subsectors versus in the food groups. Right. Mike, comments to that? Yeah, no, I think there's a couple of things you think about where does this end? One thing that, you know, we can look at what the market believes inflation will be through watching TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, and the market views the Fed will get this under control. And so 10-year real yields are down in the low, indicating inflation will be down in the low twos. And so, you know, I think people are looking and saying, okay, I'm, I'm increasing my residual cap rates because they're up, you know, and so I'm up 50 basis points, but maybe not up 100 basis points out three to five, seven years from now, because the market's telling us that the Fed is not going to allow inflation to stick. And so therefore rates aren't going to stick at these accelerated levels. And so I think what we're seeing is people looking at that, how do I underwrite the next two to three years? What do I look at in terms of the fundamentals? You know, where am I going to have issues around occupancy due to, you know, potential recession? You know, how should I underwrite rent due to a potential recession? But once I get through whatever that is, you know, I think I'm going to be back into a rational, normalized uh, price cost of capital market. I think the big difference this time versus the last cycles we've had for the last 25 years is each previous cycle, the Fed, the Fed came to our rescue. When the world slowed down, the Fed injected liquidity, reduced rates, and that has always been good, obviously, for real assets. And I think, you know, we've got this cycle where the Fed is the one creating the issue. Inflation is what they're fighting. And so our historical norm of, hey, we're just going to wait it out and the Fed will come to our rescue isn't going to happen this time. So whatever stress is in the system is going to come to fruition pretty quickly because the cost of capital is so much higher and the Fed probably has to hold it there until we do really do really slow down and then lower it. So I think the issues will come to light much quicker this time. Mm-hmm. And then qu- question, where might that stress be? Chris is suggesting it's not going to be balance sheets of the REITs, but where will the stress be? What are the, where are the places in our business where there's going to be, that may be the hardest hit? So we'll we'll talk about office later, but that obviously is the place that's being hit. Um, But it really is situations where 
people have acquired assets at uh, you know pretty low cap rates and they have not hedged their interest rate long enough. You know, we've seen even in the multifamily housing space where people, you know, they've got very strong fundamentals, but they were priced with the expectation that cap rates would be low fours and they might be low fives today. And the debt was priced, assuming it was going to be three and it's closer to six today. And so that shortfall in debt service, you know, so places like that where we had cap rates get very tight uh, and rents have not been able to move quick enough before interest rate hedges expired, that's where we'll see stress outside, you know, places like the B malls and the office space. So stress is situational. If you paid a bunch, you had a short term to deal with it and short term debts there that's that's knocking at your door, you gotta do something. Yep. In an environment where you don't want to sell and you don't want to refinance because maybe you can't, those who have to, they got some stress. Yep. One of the issues that we have is that compounds the stress that Mike was talking about is you did have people that were purchasing with the expectation that rents were going to continue to increase. And it was through that rental growth that they were going to be able to achieve the pro formas that they were expecting, whether that was in actual returns or getting that property to a stabilized level so that when they did refinance, they would have the cash flow to refinance against. If we head into an economic slowdown, that lack of rent growth is going to only compound the stresses upon refinancing because that cash flow will not be at a level that people were, were expecting. People price to the margin, right to that to, to to the edge, if you will, and those that didn't term it out or fix it, they're going to pay the price. And those price to the margin helped by the good work of folks like Eastill in the bidding process on transactions. Let's let's change the subject a little bit and let's talk about that sector that's going to be the boogeyman here, which is going to be the office sector, where there will be distress across the portfolios and a reinvention of a property type. So how does that get dealt with? What, what, are, what are the debt stresses that are gonna come up right now? Someone has to refi, but then the longer term when, hey, it's a safe property, but it might not be needed in the way that it is. And how do we recapitalize that business? So clearly, you know, office is one of the biggest asset classes that historically was the biggest asset, yep. institutional asset class in the US. Uh, and around the world. And so it's going through this massive transformation accelerated by work from home and technology changes uh, and different corporate changes of how we work. And so what we're seeing is, I would say, it's the biggest K-shaped recovery of any asset class that I think we've ever seen, where the top, call it 15% of the the stock in the best markets and best locations that really is commute-worthy is doing quite well. And uh, you have rents that are above 2019 levels for those assets because tenants will pay up to create an environment that motivates their talent to be in the office to grow the culture. At the same time, you've got the average and B quality product that is surprisingly price insensitive. That may have been, you know, $60 product. And, but, you know, you go historically, if you lower the 50 or 40, you get tenant demand 
you've got challenges getting tenant demand in that product uh, unless it's got the amenities and the location that, uh, that that people really want that will make their workforce commute to it. And so a lot of time is being spent on looking at, you know, conversion to housing, which is obviously uh, needed in most cities. And some office buildings are, are more readily convertible than others, and some are in locations that work better than others. Looking at conversion to uh, last-mile logistics, looking at conversion to it, it, self-storage, um, so there's a lot of different things that are alternative uses that need to be considered. And I think we'll we'll see over this next year as we go through recession, we obviously have already seen material layoff announcements um, at, at various tech companies. One tech company, I won't mention my name, I mentioned uh, people that own one of their buildings said uh, after recent announcements, surprising how many people are actually at the office. Uh, one, one location had more people than desks that showed up uh, sometime last week. So we got to go through this recession. We got to go through whatever layoffs occur to really see what the final net demand is of, of people in the office and what office really works and what office needs to be reimagined to new uses. So let's think about a couple of things. So you talked about recession. You talked about office has to get through the recession to start making sense. But once it makes sense, it's about half of it. But I'm thinking that the reinvention of the 60% might, and the repricing of that 60% is going to affect the debt markets, all the CMBS that's out there with that stuff backed by it. And does that create a contagion? And then I also want to think about the contagion to downtowns, which is going to be Chris's subject, but different subjects. Yeah, no, I think it, I think there's probably realistically 25 to 40% of product out there that needs to be you know, reimagined in one form or another because it's either in the wrong location right. or just it can't compete with the newer quality product um, and with people working from home. So I don't think it's 60%. Uh, but what's clearly going to happen is, you know, the, the, the financing markets have dried up very quickly. I think one of the things that the Fed uh, stress test did is they highlighted each bank's uh, office exposure. So it's made the banks much more cautious around office lending. Mm-hmm. At the same time, for instance, we're doing a financing right now, the you know, brand new great asset that'll be 50% leased, um, uh, that's already 50% leased, clearly product that people want to be at, and there's financing for that product. So it really becomes less of a broad brush, clearly more asset by asset, market by market. Yep. But what's going to happen is, you know, when debt matures, that's or leases roll, or somebody's got to write the hundred dollar, one hundred fifty dollar TI check to put a new tenant in place. That's going to create this, uh, you know, decision tree for the existing ownership to decide: is it worth putting money into this asset to either deleverage to refinance or to write checks to get new tenants in place? And if the view is we don't think our stabilized value is going to be north of our debt after writing those checks, you know, you're going to have the natural process of assets being recycled through the lending community back into the hands at a basis that allows people to reimagine, repurpose, redo those debts. So, but the one thing about the office market is leasing, you know, leases are, are staggered out, you know, so this isn't a situation that occurs in one year or one month, what have you, it's going to be a situation that occurs over five to seven years as the combination of leases roll and debt matures that triggers 
that decision tree that each owner has to make is, am I throwing good money after bad to retenant or pay down debt? Yep. I'm thinking of the ripple effects of that 20 to 40, 25 to 40% of a portfolio of a sector that had been the biggest sector for the longest time, what that does to our investors, what that does to debt, then what that does to our downtowns. And I'll add another layer to this is I'm pretty focused on climate change. And as those requirements of decarbonization come into play and into requirement, then you're adding a bogey on top of those in those downtown buildings. Chris, any comments to that whole trail? And then we'll get to the other sectors a little bit. Well, it's 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 the biggest issue that's facing our sector, meaning real estate broadly. And to your point, it has major ripple effects. I think a lot of using the retail apocalypse that we saw, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, as somewhat of a case study that we can't expect too much too soon because of what Mike talked about, the fact that you do have tenants with lease term. It's going to take a while to work through those, even if you can get to the asset to repurpose it. And then you need to find that clearing price to allow somebody to go do something with it get all the entitlements approvals, get the cities to buy in, um, this is going to take take a while. And one of the things that that is going to be difficult for the cities as we move through this is it sounds all nice to replace an office building with a self-storage because it's a use of the asset, but the tax basis is wholly different. And so as we get through this, the cities, I think, are going to have increasing stress on their own balance sheets, which then could have the issue of, well, then the cities don't have the financing to keep the infrastructure in place or to redo the infrastructure to make it more attractive to come in. And we're seeing the very first pieces or hints of that in some of the work here locally in San Francisco, where I sit, that the uh, economist for the city just did a proposal, or did a, uh, not a proposal, a presentation to the board of supervisors talking about what that stress may look like if you get this evisceration of office owners and users from the downtown core. Then you think of, well, if you do have even 25% of the off buildings go vacant, well, that's 25% of people that aren't there in the cities. And the city was built around having a population of X that could support, you know, X times Y number of restaurants, cleaners, grocery stores, and that will, I think, have a cascading effect um, and be difficult for some of the bigger things to get through. Well, and also assume that even for the not 25, the 75% that stay, still Fridays and Mondays are different than Fridays and Mondays used to be. So for the infrastructure downtown and the tax base and the restaurant buyers, it's going to double down. So the number's worse from that standpoint. Yeah. I mean, just just think of the logistics. So if 
Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday becomes the day in which everybody's in and people are not in on Mondays and Fridays. If every restaurant, if every support business in a downtown core needs to staff up for those three days, well, how do they get employees that are only going to want to work those three days and be able to feed their own families? It's the model needs to be you're serving over five days, seven days for that business model of the deli or whatever it is to actually work. Yeah. So, Crit, VK, let me ask you a question. As you look to what's attractive to investors and what has been attractive to investors, you'll begin to see cities that solve that more easily than other cities. Cities that are resilient, downtowns that are resilient from that perspective. So it was between 30 years ago and 20 years ago where cities came back and became wonderful, vibrant places. You may return to some of that stuff that I had in my 20s where people were scared from a business standpoint to be downtown and the suburbs were coming back strong. Is my comments about where that's being priced into the future or the future planning or the companies that are emerging to play to those solutions and those realities? Yeah, I think you know the, the investors are kept becoming very, very sensitive to political risk and you know environment risk and how anti-business or anti-real estate, you know, each community becomes because, uh, you know, we see obviously with increasing crime rate and kind of the somewhat of a demonization of business occasionally and even kind of ill-fated uh, tax changes that don't make sense. Like, for instance, in, in L.A., we put a ballot measure up, we call it a mansion tax, so it was easy for people to vote, but move transfer taxes from a half a percent to 5.5%. And so if you were had a building and you were leveraged 50%, we just took away, and it was 5.5% of the growth, we just took away 10% of your equity value by a 51% vote. If you're 75% leased, we just took about 20% of your equity away by a 51% vote, just, just did it. And we also didn't know, and it's interesting, the research institutions didn't speak out about it, but in California, you need tax space. You need property to turn over to get Prop 13 reset to get higher mm-hmm. taxes. Or if people are paying 10 to 20% of their equity for the privilege of selling their asset to somebody else, they're not going to sell very that much. And so you're not going to get that property tax reset. So I think people are very, becoming very sensitive to, you know, are, are these cities committed to public safety? Are they committed to policies that encourage people to be downtown, be in this urban core, encourage businesses to come back? You know, that's public safety, public decency, et cetera. And are they committed to rational tax policy that isn't, you know, beholden to this um, strategy that just demotivates people to put more capital to work? And so I think it's going to be a big, big change. You've got places like New York that are irreplaceable, right? People think you can mess it up in New York and people still want to live there because it is the ultimate 24-7 city. But you get outside some of those other cities, you know, we've seen the path of some of these cities over the years that were very prosperous, successful cities in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that, you know, have never come back. And I think that's the challenge for the political class today is to say, you know, we you know recognize we have a problem and decide if we have the political will to make it make a difference to attract people back into these urban cores. 
it's an unpopular political will. Because yep. I say this all the time on the podcast, two worst words in the English language are developer and landlord, and that's our industry. We don't need to be the two worst words, but we are. So who should have sympathy for the developer? It's really hard to, to make that case in a political standpoint. So does that change the sexy six to sexy four or three or two or different cities? And does that have the secondary cities that have grown so much, particularly in the South over the last cycle, grow further and then challenge places like where I live in San Francisco? Oh, I, th- I think the competitive landscape between cities is only going to get more so in that the cities that are winning realize the path to success. And you have a lot of the cities and the leadership that are set up to be political leaders, not forward leaders, right? So they come out of whatever political you know, morass that sits there, but they're not thinking as CEOs of that city. And that's where I think people really need to be, <clears throat> need to be thinking, particularly when you think about, okay, what do cities need to continue to evolve toward to get people back into the urban core to compete, um, to be sensitive to what the Gen Zs and the millennials want? Well, that takes public-private partnerships. That actually takes people coming together um, from the political class, the business class, the the civic class classes of that society to work in tandem to build those cities. And I think there's a lot of those silos that don't think they should be working together because you villainized everything from, as you put it, the developer and the landlord to police officers, uh, to others that are critical to creating safe cities and also creating functional, resilient cities And that's where the real estate community should be really involved. So we're going to come back to what should we be doing? And this was less a conversation about the politics of what we should be doing, (laughs) more of a conversation on our companies preparing for the next cycle. Before we do, we've really focused on office and focused on downtown challenges in the past few minutes. Are there any other comments to make on the sectors of the food groups of real estate particularly apartments, particularly industrial, do they come back out as strong as they've been generally, not in downtown San Francisco necessarily, but how do they come out? Well, one thing, you know, we, we continue to be very short housing and uh, in terms of, of just not having enough housing. And we, at the same time, the replacement cost is really, you know, continues to grow. And obviously that currently the home ownership cost has gone up a lot with six or 7% mortgages. So we see in the housing space, whether it's build the rent, multifamily, you know, we got a lot of deliveries next year, a lot of supply after that's already being cut off given the change in financing costs. So I think there's going to be a lot of resilience in, around housing. So we feel very you know, constructive about that. In the logistics space and in industrial in particular, you know, we've obviously had a huge e-commerce run that was really accelerated during COVID. Uh, we do have headwinds now, increasing labor costs and fuel costs associated with operating uh, e-commerce. But we also have this tailwind of deglobalization, which we talked about, you know, back offshoring more 
capacity to become, make sure that we are more resilient to uh, economic slowdown, to economic sanctions, et cetera. So that tailwind in the logistics combined with the ability also there to cut off supply very quickly because it's not a long-term lead. Uh, and you have more and more local communities that are pushing back on adding industrial to their communities. So those two sectors that have been very strong, we think are likely to come out first and continue to be very strong. Then you move, you know, the open air retail space that has recovered, you know, pretty quickly. And we've really not built much for 10 to 15 years. The population growth is out, out, outpaced supply. We took out a lot of the weak tenants during COVID. So now we're seeing open air space really actually rent growth uh, when rent leases roll and being able to choose those ones that really work or don't. So those are some of the sectors that we think are coming out of this. Uh, will come out of this, you know, the fastest with the most net demand. I'll ask a quick question with some quick answers on the specialty sectors. Any comment, Mike, first you and then Chris on how to approach those and what percentage maybe of dollars into real estate those sectors will become? Yeah, and Chris can comment on how big they are as a percentage of the REIT space. They're quite large, but people become very focused on these alternatives that have inflation protection and low CapEx. So you think about mobile home parks, think about self-storage, think about alternative sectors like that, data centers. Um, That has become a big focus of institutional uh, investors in the private space, kind of catching up with the institutional investors in the public REIT space that Chris can talk to yeah, and that's and that's very true. I mean, you go back 15 years, and my sector was very, meaning the public REITs were very similar from where you could get exposure by sector. It was heavily office, heavily multifamily. Um, over the last 15 years, though, these alternative sectors have grown to be over 50 percent of my space. And so the largest REIT out there is a tower REIT. One of the top 10 REITs is now a triple net lease gaming REIT. So there are these these alternatives that are out there. And what I find interesting about them is many of them, in my opinion, require different skill sets to acquire than an office building or a multifamily building. And what I would argue is that that creates more value around a yeah. platform where you actually create expertise in that asset class, not only in how you operate it, but how you build it, acquire it, and manage it for the long term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and you and I have talked about this before, not on, on leading voices, but the value of the platform may be outsized in those sector spaces and you get paid for that. Absolutely. But what it does is if you're new capital looking to get into those spaces for all the things that BK was was talking about, those benefits, you may need to try to access it in different ways. And I think the, the best illustration of that is how over the last two decades, Blackstone has really gone at their investment book through platforms through having specialists and and management teams that are focused on those different segments that they're playing thematically. It's interesting because half of the sector plays they have had have been in the main food groups, 
and the other half of the sector plays, and we, we have been in the specialty types, and there's now an affordable housing specialty at Blackstone. There's mm-hmm. uh, biotech, which we know about, and been on leading voices. So they're playing both both in each. Comments to that? Yeah, Blackstone has been, you know, it started with the organization of Biomed, but they've been looking at these different sectors, whether it be in self-storage, in life science, in uh, building rent housing, in, in single family, uh, been a very, you know, forward thinking at looking at how to get capital deployed, data centers, another one into those spaces. I think a lot of investors are looking at that. Uh, two and multiple examples across the investor universe. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because th- that particular investor, sticking with Blackstone for just a minute, has decided to become vertically integrated and expert in a platform, which, Chris, it's right to the point that you made a minute ago. It's not just how you buy it. It's how you buy it and operate it. And if you could do that together into a virtuous, not a vicious cycle, it's a pretty good deal. I think that our industry is moving even more to that. If you you think of how do we begin, not even begin because we've been doing it, but continue to apply technology solutions to the asset. If we are thinking that to reinvigorate cities or locations, it needs to be multi-use. Well, then sort of a mixed-use, you know, multi-use profile has different management needs and skills that you you have to deploy um, and then think through things like the political aspects, the resiliency around climate risk. There are things that you now need to have disciplines uh, within the company to be able to try to solve. And how do you do that if you are deploying capital episodically when you just raise a new fund and then go across the food groups? How do you create, you know, how do you have that skill set embedded within your company? Well, it's a lot easier if you have that platform that is in the business continually day in, day out, and in effect, almost in perpetuity. So I think that pivots us to discussing what companies should be doing now, what companies do to address what their strategy is going forward, hoping they don't have debt maturities tomorrow, because that's not going to be helpful. But a Apart from dealing with that strategic immediate mandate, then what do companies do to prepare for all the trends that we've talked about? How do they think about their development pipelines that are still sitting out there? How do they buy land? How do they know what's coming? Where do we go? Well, I think uh, Sam Zell once said that we can say stay alive to 25. Is the, uh, uh, I think you know what we see is these, these do snap back um, sometimes faster than we expect. And so, like, for instance, in the housing space, we have record deliveries in 23. Uh, people are clearly shutting down pipelines. Uh, but you think about if you can start identifying things that you can deliver in 25 or 26, that's going to be, you know, product that likely comes into, it gets developed, delivered into a market that looks uh, pretty good at that point. So I think it's thinking about, you know, what do you what what is what does the world look like in in uh, you know late 24 25 and how do I make sure I've got either my current asset position to be able to capture that part of that recovery or creating assets at that point that will capture that recovery and we know this could be a housing shortage of 26 
I, I don't yep. think there's anything that's going to suggest that will have changed by then. Talk more about that, though. So what do companies do? Is that a development pipeline they're thinking about? Is it, and how do they also then create the business platforms that compete with both the REITs that have very sophisticated business platforms and now the Blackstone portfolio companies like them who are saying, hey, we have to create our own operating company like a REIT to be competitive in these sectors. Then how do the small and mid-sized companies move forward? And are there losers who don't come out of it because they're generalists? You know, look, the market continues to push people into more specialization. So I think it's a um, challenging to be a generalist unless you're a generalist that's a big enough size that you have a lot of great operating partners. So there's generalists that do have that and do quite well. If you're a smaller generalist that don't, you know, that hasn't focused in on a specific niche, it's going to be, I think, harder and harder to uh, to perform. But I think everyone has kind of they got three pieces of your business plan, right? You've got to get, you know, focus into what you own right now. Do we have the lease structure, the capital structure, the the uh, the loan structure, and the promote structure to get through the next two or three years? And if we don't, we got to figure out how to do that. And then two, I think you know people are watching people get very focused on specific, you know, looking at you know the markets that they know best. What are the assets that are going to likely come available? And what are, you know, that I could focus on now to think about how I might change that asset, approve that asset. So it's a specific, you know, asset and market analysis. And then third, the ones that have real development capability are really thinking about what is that land pipeline, you now particularly in housing and logistics and even in best quality office. You know, what are those places that are going to potentially come available? How do I get my team focused on those locations that when they do become available, I can be ready and have thought through the business plan to acquire them and take advantage of that of that distress that we may see in the market. Mm -hmm. Chris, anything to add to that? This is a time where people should be looking at their strategy. And if they've had any drift, you know, style bleed over the last couple of years, they need to they need to refocus. They need to need to go back to their knitting, if you will, and figure out what their core competency is to get through this next phase and hopefully uh, not be in that in that stress position where they need to be refinanced. I think that refinancing piece, unfortunately for some people, that's gonna be happenstance because of just what your term was, what your structure was. But the company strategy piece to me is separate from that, right? It may be linked if you get into a bad position, but that strategy is where the management teams really need to be be dialing it in. It's interesting because if you have assets that are challenged by timing on debt or you have to sell and get out for other fund reasons, then those are your challenge assets in this period of time. We know that. Given that, though, I think what you're saying is assuming that we come out of this and it's business the same way, you're missing the point. When we come out of this, be in your space, but be in your space with focus, with knowledge. Take the breathing room that you're not saving your troubled assets and, and double down on who you are. Or if you're in the wrong place, double down to somewhere else. But be conscious about that. 
And and I would say be conscious of right where and we're all in the middle of this. So it's tough to say what is where does that puck end up moving? But I would suggest that if you look at the changes that we've seen coming through COVID around the winners and losers of industry, for example, I think that is only going to get faster. And by that, when I look at it, I say, before COVID, we knew that the life sciences space was going gangbusters. The technology space was going gangbusters. And we, we viewed them almost as separate. But now I think we are seeing that there is a coalescing of hardware, software, and biology and medicine that probably is going to have decades of tailwinds. And so if you can get in the middle of that nexus where you're in an economy that has all those food groups, I think the synergies coming out of that coalescing are going to be pretty incredible. Right. But the bar's pretty high because there's specialist companies that really know their stuff. Again, think biotech in particular. Tim Schoen was on Leading Voices a couple months ago, and you just have a depth of expertise, and there's half a dozen players that do. The barriers are high. Let's talk about something near and dear to my heart, which is culture. And, and Chris, a couple of years ago, I was at a NAREIT conference, and Jay Loop, your partner, was on a panel with me. And I asked Jay and Ross Smotrich, another good friend of both of ours, uh, a question about culture and companies. And when you review a REIT, when you look at a REIT, do you look at their assets or do you look at their platform? And in looking at their platform, how do you value that? And platform gets to culture and gets to the overall business model that you'd mentioned a few minutes ago. Has that been priced in to differentiate companies very well? It is priced agree, but it has not been priced in, I believe, fully. Because you do have a good piece where people think of these companies as the sum of their assets. Right. And they're just looking at it from that, that bottoms up. But I think if you take a, a broader duration lens and look at the best performing companies over time versus the less performing companies, a lot of that is due to the platform and the management that creates a virtuous cycle because they are able to retain the talent. They are able to put in overlays of create higher margins, allows those better performing REITs to actually function at a higher level from operations than others. And therefore, over time, should theoretically lower your weighted average cost of capital, which means that your input prices now from a capital perspective are lower than peers. And that goes to having a winning model. <laughs> VK, question for you. Just think about human capital and in, you're in a business famous where the human capital is what counts and not the business platform. But I think the world has changed a bunch. And Eastill Secured in particular has a business platform first and the human, the big shot second. It's also happened, though, with the other larger shops, particularly CBRE, which definitely has a business platform driving reputation, driving management. But talk about that within your business and how that's transformed since the last cycle or the cycle before that? 
Yeah, I think we look at, you know, culture is such a hard thing to build and so important to maintain when you build it. And so it's one of the things that we focus on continually in our firm is the culture that we've built of really being able to bring hopefully the best and the brightest to bear that can realize that by being uber competitive externally, but uber collaborative internally, that brings the best value to the clients um, and therefore brings more opportunity to serve the clients and therefore brings more success for the firm and for the individuals. And so we're, we're, I think it's the biggest thing that we focus on internally is how do we, you know, grow at a rational pace that maintains that culture. We grew too fast and lost the culture. You know, we just become one of many others. And so we are very focused on finding people that recognize the value of that culture, uh, and integrating them into it and allowing us to do more for our clients, which, you know, ultimately Hopefully it does more for the firm and for the individuals. So I think it's creating a culture where people recognize that because of the collaboration they have with other people that are very, very talented, that they can be more relevant and serve the clients better with that collaboration than they would in a what tends to be very siloed other businesses and other firms uh, where it's all about the people and people move every five years for a different contract. That limits the ability to generate that internal collaboration that really benefits the client and gives the best ideas at the right time, particularly in times of stress like this, to clients as they're making very, very important decisions. Yeah. And in your business, you do one thing, one thing well, which is investment sales and investment banking. You haven't added leasing, haven't added property management, and like that, if you were to, does that does the mono line or that focus help you maintain that kind of culture and that kind of focus versus if you were broader as an yeah. entity? Yeah, no, I think it's part of our, our strategy is to become, be stayed very focused so that we are really hopefully best in class in anywhere the capital moves in our space. We've also been very, very sensitive about in any way competing with our clients. Some of our clients do their own leasing, some of the clients we obviously run a lot of investment funds. We don't do that. And a lot of our clients do their own management. So we've been very focused on being pure play uh, and not competing with our clients in any manner so that we can give them the best unbiased advice. Um, but that also helps us keep everyone focused on what's most important to each client and driving that forward. Makes sense. I want to return to the question of politics is the wrong word, but downtowns. And the multiple challenges to downtowns, and Chris, this one's for you, coming from Fisher Center at Berkeley. How do we address these topics? And and both Berkeley and we're close to San Francisco. So how do we address these problems as an industry, and in particularly in the more troubled cities, if that's the right word? I think I think it goes to leadership and engagement. That when things were so good interest rates going down, which is great for our asset class, the economy going up, it was easy to disconnect from your community, which really the functioning of the community, the resiliency of that community is what creates ultimately a great economy and and therefore great real estate. And so without that engagement and partnering, then you're going to have a very difficult time. So I think we need to be engaged and be leaders within our communities 
Now, unfortunately, that also means that you need to have willing partners on the other side, which may end up being the real, the real stumbling block is that, that we may want to be partners, but if you have political leadership that views us questionably, they may not be, be open for that. And so it's, it's, it's a tough one. But I think, look, if you take the case of San Francisco and California, the real estate community here has really stepped up, I believe, over the last five years, recognizing that that leadership role needs to be taken by the industry and is fighting really hard to get San Francisco back into a place where it will be viewed as competitive internationally as a city and hopefully you know, a strong grower for decades to come. Yeah, Leading Voices talks about these subjects. And it's interesting if we think back 10 years, think back a couple of cycles, what our leaders in the industry did in our trade associations was to protect our positions. And our real role is to be civic leaders. And we had another podcast with Larry Baer and Carl Shannon talking about the group of civic leaders that got together to keep the giants in San Francisco. And what does civic leadership mean for an industry? And that really is our role, particularly with carbon in our face, downtown challenges in our face. Our job is not to protect ourselves. Our job is to be ahead of ourselves. And it's a really big deal. It's a really part of the, big part of the industry. And I'll use that to segue to the last question on leading voices. You'll know where I'm going, but the last question is always, what's your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business? VK, I'm going to start with you because Chris talks to young people all day long <laughs> at Berkeley. Yeah, so my uh, advice to young people is, number one, try to find a place where you can get, you know, quickly get some hands-on experience, whether it's in leasing, sales, doing Argus, et cetera. Get, find the place that will give you some hands-on experience quickly. And then two, start to develop, learn what you are good at and what comes naturally to you and what to the business you struggle with that you really have to work to get to be to be good at. And then as you're meeting people in these first jobs, find people who have different skill sets than you, where those things that you struggle with, you know, you watch somebody do it and it seems like it just comes naturally to them. And you wonder, wow, I wish I could do that as well as he or she does. When you see those type of people figure out how to work together, because then two plus two can become six. Uh, and that's been the experience of my own career is that I've gotten the opportunity to work with really talented people who were different than I and did, be did things better than I did in a lot of areas and be able to partner with them. We were able to achieve much more than we would just trying to do it on our own. Yeah, it's incredible advice. And in my real estate career, I spent 20 years being a fish out of water trying to find the role that was going to work really well for me. It became headhunter, which is not the role one would advise anyone to do. But until you find that special place where you can really excel, it's really hard. And people think they're natural in that which is most sexy, but that may not be the case. So yep. really well said. Chris? I think it goes to find the best people that you can work for and don't be afraid to fail. Real estate has the luxury of having so many different paths that you will be able to find your place, Matt, even as you said, it may take a while. But you know, failure is one thing that in real estate, people do not look poorly at. 
Um, now, if it's fraud failure, <laughs> that's another issue. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's find the best people and don't be afraid to, to take some swings and fail. Cool. VK, any last comment? We always get through these times. Each one is different. Something new happens each time we go through them. Usually you end up at the other side going, wow, I really learned something there. And I was able to expand my business or my personal growth through that. And so I think that's the message that I look at as we walk into an uncertain time again that we haven't had for a while. It's all true. Guys, thank you very much for being on the show. This is a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Thank, thank you, guys. Great. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.